Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible uh, or, or if you need a Bible, raise your hand. But we're in John this morning, John chapter 13. And while you're doing that, I want you to think about a time when you wish you could have a do-over. Now, I want to ask um, those 16 and under, how many of you guys love video games, gals or guys? Raise your hand if you love video games, okay? One of the cool things about video games, um, all right, put your hands down now. One of the cool things about, yeah, Lucas always joins the fray on that one, uh, is that you get do-overs, right? It used to be old school days is you got a quarter and, um, and you put it in the machine and usually, um, come on, children of the 80s, how many lives did you get normally? Three. Three. I mean, that was the standard thing, right? It was the trinity of video games. And one quarter bought you three tries at something, right? And so you knew after the first death, you're still okay. You still have two more. But after that second one, your heart's pounding a little bit more. You're like, my quarter's about ready to be done. And then that third one, whatever, like the sound would come up. And you're like, man. And then some guy had his quarter up on the machine, so he's next. You know, our kids missed all of that. But... um, I'm thinking of reinstating that in our home. I think that'd be cool. But don't you love do-overs? And, and, and in life, I mean, there's just certain times in life that, that you just wish you had a do-over. I came across this, this news article this week, um, and it kind of fits under the why thinking is handy category to me. Uh, but here it is. Rescue crews in Filer, Idaho, rushed to aid a man who was stuck in a sewage tank at a highway rest stop. Okay? Get the picture of that one? Yeet. The unidentified traveler had used the toilet and then couldn't find his car keys. He figured he must have flushed them and climbed into the sewage tank to look for them. After the rescue, obliging fire crews, thanks Jim and firemen all around the world for this, hosed him off. (laughs) And then, catch this, that's when he discovered the keys were still in his back pocket. So someone who climbs into a sewage tank first and thinks to check their pockets second, that's kind of the definition of someone who longs for a do-over, right? I don't know what your do-over was, but I think that guy kind of beat me to the punch on that one. Um, this morning, we're going to look at, um, at kind of this concept of, of do-over a little bit. And if you're, uh, if you're in the Gospel of John, turn to, to John chapter 13. We're going to look at kind of the second half of it. And I just want to say that this morning, um, if, you have, if you have ever been dumped, if you've ever been fired from a job, if you've ever lost a game, uh, had a friend be mad at you, if you've ever regretted a choice, if you've ever received a Dear John or I suppose a Dear Jane letter, um, if you've ever been jealous or lived in a two-story house, then this morning's message is for you. So there it goes. I think it covers a pretty broad... I could add if you've ever blinked. I mean, really, it's everyone in the room today is going to get something out of this. In the pages of scripture here, we're going to see just kind of um, some, some, some story unfold. The title of this morning's message sounds a little bit like the romance novels that line the shelves and uh, that some people buy. I'm not sure who buys these, but they're quite popular evidently. Um, and, and I thought about just all the different you know, romance novels that are out there and movie titles that are out there that talk about love and, re- and rejection and betrayal and really, in, in a sense, every love story kind of branches off or in some ways is birthed by this great love story that the Bible speaks of. And um, it started in the Garden of Eden, and, and it's really God's love story to us. One author termed it this way. It's called The Sacred Romance. And I like that title because that's, that's really what's going on. I want you to just indulge me for a moment and just let your brain kind of wonder and wander for a second. And think about the fact that God could have 
revealed himself in any number of ways. And in the Bible, we have a number of variations on how he's revealed himself to us. But one of the predominant ones that actually carries all through the scripture is this idea of God as our lover. And it's really God pursuing us and God wooing us and God literally wooing us into relationship with himself, even with gifts. And it's really this picture of a love between a man and a woman. And that's a pretty powerful thing if you think about that, the God of the universe that would reveal himself in that way. And inherent in that is this idea that um, if, you are, if you are setting yourself into that position, you are putting yourself in a place where you can get hurt, where you can get betrayed, where you can get rejected. And in essence, there's a, there's a humbling factor to that, that God would reveal himself in that way. There's a great irony exists, and it's this. God doesn't need us, but rather he wants us. And just to let your brain linger on that for a good season of time changes a lot of your day. It really does. It, it allows, your, it allows your, your step to be a little bit lighter. It allows your circumstances to change. But here's, here's the ironic part, is that while you and I and everyone you've ever met desperately is in need of God, we don't want him much of the time. And so therein lies the rub. And therein lies this reality that relationships, as anyone who's in a relationship knows, are risky. Aren't they? You enter into a love relationship, and it's by nature a risk. I want to read for you from, uh, from John 13, and we'll start in verse 18. Last week we talked about what it looks like to follow a janitor Jesus, a serving Jesus, one who would get down on his knees and take up not just a slave's position, but the lowest slave position and do the absolute dirtiest chore. And now we're, we're moving on in the story, and this is, this is starting in verse 18, and you can just kind of follow along with me. And it says this, <clears throat> I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scriptures. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now, mind you, the setting is him in, a, in an upper room, it says, with, with his closest, most intimate allies. He's left his public ministry. He's kind of said his last words publicly to Israel. And now he's bringing it in, and this really begins the whole second part of John. I was thinking about it. It's kind of neat that we're right near this part of the story on Palm Sunday. By the way, we didn't go with the Hawaiian theme this morning. This is Palm Sunday. We're not going to talk just a ton about that, but, um, but only to remember, we, we talked about this a, a little bit ago as Jesus enters the city, that while it's appropriate and good to recreate Palm Sunday, there's a weird, darker undertone to it, right? Because the same people chanting, waving branches in honor are the same people that in just a few days are going to be shouting with anger in their voice, crucify this guy, kill him. And that's the Sunday that we remember this morning. <clears throat> so the setting is this intimate setting and these these 12 men around a table and, of course, sharing a meal, much like it is today, but even more significant, is this sign of friendship and intimacy that's going on. And Jesus tells them bluntly, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, and his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. 
One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, many think that would be John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and asked him, ask him which one he means. Probably kind of mouths it across the table to him, right? Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus says. Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And John is just a brilliant writer, and one of the things he does a whole bunch in 1 John is he uses light and darkness. He uses extreme kinds of language. He paints with really bold kinds of colors. And it's actually significant that he points out, he takes the time to point out that it was night. And there's just kind of, I mean, that's, as a reader, that's kind of our cue that the music has shifted and that there's something dark going on here. I want to just take a a little bit of time. We're going to look at Judas this morning. We're going to look at Peter this morning. And then we're going to look at this new command that Jesus offers to his disciples. So just a moment on Judas here. I want you to, uh, if you you have a bulletin, to to pull out the notes. And you can kind of follow along by jotting some things down and whatever uh, stands out to you. But Judas had quite a resume, if you think about it. He was chosen by Jesus as one of the disciples. Okay, So let's not forget that. He didn't just wander in uninvited. Jesus prayed about this, sought out Judas, and picked Judas as one of the twelve. He also spent three years working together with Jesus. Think about your own self. If you spent three years working side by side with someone, you you start to get the sense that you kind of know the person, right? Um, I mean, just time after time you're spending with them. And so this isn't just revelation that's, you know, a, a, a few months old. This is three years of working and walking and really living alongside this person. Finally, we know that he was the group treasurer. Think about in your own family or your business or playing Monopoly. You don't put the treasure position on someone who's untrustworthy, right? You don't say, who's the biggest snake here? You hold the money. No, it's an esteemed position, really. It's actually a place of integrity. It would say, you know what? You're the one who's trustworthy to, to, um, to, to do this. As we look at Judas, we're not going to spend just a ton of time unpacking him because he's going to show up later in the story. But I, I do want to say this, that I think they're in, in, in Judas... This morning, even from this passage, there are some warnings for us. It's not just an isolated case of a single person's demise. I think there are actually, in fact, things that we can learn and, and, and look at from his life. Here's some warnings that I would say you and I can walk away with as we just look and, and contemplate the, the life of, of, of Judas. One is just the idea of spiritual warfare. Be warned that spiritual warfare is real and it's dark and it's fierce. Isn't it amazing? I mean, if you've grown up in church and you've read this story or heard this story read before, it kind of, you can kind of blitz by it. But think about this. Satan entered one of the disciples. That's a, that's a powerful statement. If you walk up to someone tomorrow in the office and say, you're filled with Satan, that's a trippy thing to say, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big, bold proclamation that you would say that. And then to think about the fact that one of the 12 disciples, it says that Satan entered into him, verse 27. 
Now, we, we looked a little bit about this uh, as a men's group we have that, that meet on Friday morning, but, but what to do when you're under attack. <clears throat> and for those of you who think this is just scary, weird stuff, I don't want to think about it, um, that's just like an ostrich burying his head and just, just drowning out the noise and going, I don't want to think about this. This is talked about so much in Scripture that you would be wise to pay attention to it, even if it's fearful, even if it's unknown and uncertain to you. I used to mountain bike in Colorado, and um, because I didn't have many friends out there, um, I would go do it alone. And I would be up in the mountains riding my bike around, and um, there was this spot I would go to about 10,000 feet up Pikes Peak. And, um, and I'd drive my truck out on this road for about 20 miles on a dirt road. Then I would unpack my mountain bike and go for a ride around this reservoir. And as I was out there, um, being, being from California, being from here, um, I began to realize, man, I am really, really, really far out here. And um, you know when you're alone or at night sometimes, you kind of hear a little stick you know, crackle or a noise. You're like, what was that? You know, in every sense, like you just it freeze, you know, and you're thinking. Well, when you're mountain biking out in the woods and it starts to get a dark, it gets dark very quickly in Colorado and storms roll in very quickly and all kinds of stuff. When there's kind of just this haze and darkness around, it gets really freaky out there, okay? And I'm riding along, and I'm like, what was that? You know, I totally hear something. I feel a presence, you know. <clears throat> and I began to, to ask around. I thought it'd probably be wise for me. I was engaged at the time. I thought, you know, to make the wedding day, it'd probably be wise to figure out what I should do um, if I'm attacked by things out here. And so I started asking around to people. And, um, and one of the things that, that you can, you know, be hampered with out there, that's an understatement, um, is a large cat of some sort attacking you, you know, and that was my biggest fear. And, um, and so one of the things that I was told was, uh, was that you're supposed to fight back. There's different animals, you're supposed to do different kinds of things, you know, look big, bang pots, you know, whatever. Well, when a cat attacks you, you don't try and look big, you know. <laughs> um, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to fight back. And I actually learned some interesting tips that at the welcome lunch, and I'll share with you if you'd like to know. Um, <laughs> But I learned some really interesting tips but of how to do it. You're supposed to fight back when a big cat attacks you. So when I'm out there writing, I'm telling you, it's a great devotional tool to go put yourself in a freaky situation. Your prayer life increases. Your faith increases. But I'm riding along, and I'm ready, man. I'm waiting for the attack, and I'm going to fight back. You know, I'm going to beat this cat. So um, here's <laughs> this is a long story. Here's why, here's why I'm bringing this up. James 4, 7 says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Okay, there's one instruction in spiritual warfare. Submit yourself to God. Be under the authority of God. But here's the second part of that. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We're told to resist the devil. When you're under spiritual attack, you resist. Now, how did Jesus resist when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? What did he do? What was his number one choice? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he fought the, he fought the battle with other passages of scripture. You know, it's interesting. What did, what did Satan come and attack Jesus with? Passages of scripture. So he comes misinterpreted, out of context, taking statements, trying to woo away. What does Jesus do? He fights. He resists. He doesn't even get into a lengthy discussion. He just fires back with passages of scripture. So when you are under attack, and guess what? It's fierce and it's real and it will happen. If you haven't experienced it already, already, you are to resist. Here's the sad thing about Judas is he inverted this process. Instead of submitting to God, he submitted to Satan. He came under the authority of Satan in essence. He, he was an accomplice. He was a willing accomplice to Satan. And he actually resisted God. 
The second you invert those two, you don't submit to God, but you resist him, you're starting to walk a dangerous water. When you stop resisting the devil and start being an accomplice to the devil, it ends up in a really, really, really bad place. So spiritual warfare is one warning I want you to take away. Here's the second one is that church is not enough. You know, we have this, we have this weird, bizarre picture. I think it's because we're not an overly persecuted country yet. That great church attendance, great Bible study attendance is somehow enough to let us be part of the kingdom. We can even hear great Bible teaching. We can listen to all kinds of podcasts. We have the world at our fingertips. But all of that is not enough. Being close to church is not enough. Let me ask you this. Could Judas have gotten any closer to church, to God, than, than, than almost anyone on, on earth in history? Right? Here's the, here's the point. That just being exposed to the light doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to receive the light, walk by the light, and have a regenerate regenerate heart. And Judas proves that out. Judas was one of those who walked with Jesus for over three years. He was right next to the light. Remember what John said in in chapter 1? He says this, the light shines in the darkness. That's Jesus, right? Jesus comes to that which was his own. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So just being in proximity of godly people, just being in a family of a really godly heritage, that is not what gets you saved. And Judas bears that out in a tragic kind of a way. Here's a third warning that we need to take from the life of Judas. That is hypocrisy. I tend to think of Judas because most of the gospel writers, as they're writing, they're writing in reverse. And they always put Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. And that title never left him. Church history records that the name of Judas and just Judas's persona was despised because it was one of the most treacherous acts of all humankind that, that he participated in and did. And yet, in this upper room setting, in this private dining room that they were sitting there having a meal, do you notice what the scriptures say? That when Jesus says bluntly and lays it out plainly, one of you is going to betray me, they're at an utter loss as to who it is. Now, I, would, I tend to think of Judas this way. Like, Judas, like Jesus says that, and everyone goes, Aha! We knew it, Judas! And he's got these beady eyes, like, ee, You know, it looks a little bit like a rat or something. Well, guess what? They're at a total loss. They don't know who it is. I mean, knowing Peter, I think Peter wants to find out who it is, not because he's just curious and he wants to gossip about him. I think Peter's reaching for his sword right now. I think he's just ready to take action. Let me at him. You tell, who is it? So it's interesting, isn't it, that right next to you, sitting in this church, there are both weeds and wheat, as Jesus says. There are those who sit in churches every single Sunday morning across America, and some are true believers of Jesus Christ. Some have yielded their life. They've submitted their life to God. Others look on the external arena, on the outside, identical. Even participate in many of the same kinds of things. And yet when judgment day comes, they aren't in the family of God. I spent a lot of years as a youth pastor. And time just bears this out. I thought, man, I'm really glad I'm not the judge. Because I would have have misjudged a thousand times over. 
And so that's why I just pray for the souls of, of people that I know. And I say, Lord, and I pray for my own soul. And that leads us to this, this fourth thing, and that's self-deception. I think self-deception is something that Satan uses in the lives of people. Gets us good and comfortable that we're in, we're safe. We go to church a lot. Got a lot of Bible passages memorized. You know what Matthew records that Judas says? I mean, just think about these words. Judas is one of those, and he's chiming in with all the other disciples. He says, surely is not I, Rabbi. I don't know that he said that with a total two-faced, hypocritical face. Or if, or if there was a snapping point somewhere along the lines. But I do know this, that self-deception is easy pickings for an enemy who wants to pick you off. If he thinks that you're doing pretty good and he thinks that you're heading on the right path and you're just starting to skew just a little bit, that's right where the enemy would, would want you. I think he does that individually. I think he does that with families. I think he can take whole churches and just slowly start to guide churches off the path. Self-deception is real, and I think we should take the, the warning. We're told elsewhere in Scripture to be alert. And then he compares the devil to a roaring lion, right? It's, it's me on the mountain bike. Don't just bebop along. Do-do-do. I think I'll dress like a kitty toy today, you know, and go mountain biking by myself. Be alert. Pay attention. Find out what you should do. Ultimately, it's in God's hands. But be alert. Elsewhere, it says that we're not unaware of the devil's schemes. Are you aware at all of the devil's schemes? Do you know how he attacks? Do you know what to do in an attack? That's on us. From here in the story, Judas literally goes out and sells his soul to the devil. He goes out and he betrays Jesus. We'll look at more of that in in a couple of weeks to come. But this is more than just a great story around Easter time that someone dreamt up. This is how it played out. And we're seeing kind of the first fruits of this and the first tangible evidence of what's going to happen and bear out later on in the story. I used to have a small group leader in high school and he was a a police officer here in San Jose. And uh, we loved it when he would tell us stories um, about police work. And how cool was it, you know, that, that you knew someone who was, a, who was a policeman and, you know, most of us at some point had wanted to become a policeman. We're like, tell us another cool story, you know, and he'd try to get us back to Bible study and stuff. But he would tell us this. He said, you know, the most violent and volatile and scary situations to, to walk into are domestic disturbances. Now, domestic disturbances is a polite kind of a way of saying two you know, lovers, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, family member, roommate that are at each other's throat. He said, man, walking into those, things could boil over at any minute. And you'd think it's something totally different than that, but he said those were the ones that were scariest. And it kind of bears out this truth that that you can hurt those deepest that you're closest to, Right? Those that you've opened your soul and, and, and bared every part of you to, they're the ones who can rip you apart the worst. And when that happens, there's an anger level and a violence level that can erupt that police officers know. If it's a domestic disturbance, you don't kind of bebop in and go, well, this should be easy. Those are really, really volatile. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about one of your closest friends, okay? 
Think about one of the people that you would say, man, if I had to pick one or two of my closest friends right now, it would be this person. I want you to get their name in your head. I want you to get their face in your mind. I want you to think about them for a second, okay? Now, what if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that this person that's in your mind right now, maybe they're sitting next to you right now. Maybe you drove to church with them right now or this morning. What if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that next week, they were going to turn around and stab you in the back in the worst possible way. That they would become really your biggest traitor. Let me just have you think for a moment. How would you treat them the rest of today? What would the drive home from church be like that was different on the way to church? What would happen tomorrow morning and the next day? Here's what I want you to see. Here we are in an upper room. Jesus has full and complete knowledge that he will be stabbed in the back by one of his close allies, and it's Judas. He's not taken by surprise by that. And here's what he does. He dines with him. That's a sign of friendship. He kneels to wash his feet. But here's another thing that he does. He doesn't just let it go and avoid confrontation. You know what he does? He calls it out. Jesus came to expose truth and to, and to reveal truth. That's what happens in a, in a room full of people who are serving God and walking with the Lord. They bring junk into the light. He didn't just brush it over and go, well, that's okay. All of us have our bad days. He calls it out. He says, one of you is going to betray me. <clears throat> As if betrayal weren't enough, Um, Peter kind of joins in with his own antics here. I want to read on from verse 31. It says this. After it says, and it was night, verse 31 picks up. And when he had gone, or when he was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will not be with you um, I'm sorry, my, my children, I will be with you only a little, a, a little longer. You will look for me. <clears throat> and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I want you to think about the word rejection for a moment. And um, there's something... (laughs) Kids, have your parents read that to you if you can't read yet. So you know what all the ooing is about. There's something I'm realizing as I, as I get a little bit older and, and get to know more and more people, and that's this. I think most people, if not all people, are deeply insecure. I really think that's part of the wound of sin. I think that's part of the brokenness in our character, part of the flaw that keeps us running back to God. Some of us in this room are exceedingly good at thinking of creative ways of masking that, but I think most of us are deeply insecure individuals. And the second thing I think is this. I think fear of rejection keeps us from really loving one another 
I think fear of rejection um, really prevents us from living out the life God has called us to live. There's something that happens. Um, I, I think God hardwired this in at least American boys. I can't speak worldwide, but um, I think about like a, a middle school dance. And if you're with a group of guys and he's like, hey, I'm going to go ask that girl to dance with me, and he walks over there and all the guys happen to hear her harsh rejection of him, you know what guys tend to do? Oh, rejection! And they just, I mean, they high-five. It's this weird thing that goes on. The guy comes back utterly crushed, but usually he's like, oh, I didn't want to ask her anyways. I asked the wrong girl. Uh, no, no, no. And there's this bravado that goes on. Girls would just melt, and they'd just cover her with love, and then they'd talk about her behind her back later. But guys and girls handle this super, super different, right? I mean, in sports, we love it when someone just gets packed in basketball. Oh, you know, there's just this thing in guys. And the way we say it is rejection. You know, it's like this five-syllable word. And and we just, there's something about that. And, and I don't know if this is guys in general doing this, but maybe that's us just going, I am so glad that wasn't me. <laughs> Woo! Man, let's take the spotlight and put it on that poor sap right there. But there's something about this whole idea of, of rejection. And I think some people go through life with this kind of a motto. You know what? I've been burned really, really bad before. Whether it be in a relationship, whether it be from my parents, whether it be from an employer, a friend, or some dream that I've gone after, or maybe even God. But I've been burned so bad before that I am just going to build a wall and protect myself. I'm going to buy like one of those little fireproof safes. I'm going to just kind of climb inside pull it shut behind me, and that's just how it's going to be. And for those of you who've been burned very deeply in love, whether you've chosen to go that route or not, you identify with why someone would do that. You just identify with, man, why you would want to not go through something like that again. Here's what I'm thrilled about. I'm thrilled that God lives by a different motto than that. That when God is burned by love, remember he's a lover pursuing relationship. That when God receives the dear John letter, when God is rejected, when God is betrayed, when he's denied by his closest ally, there's this idea of a do-over. Kind of the biblical word, the scriptural word, the churchy word is the word grace. And grace is this idea of a do-over. And it's not pay a quarter and get three lives. It's this idea that God says, I'm going to pursue you because of my love for you and because of grace. As you think about it in these terms, now you begin to see why verse 21 says, and Jesus was troubled in spirit. The disciples could feel it, I'm sure. Because he just sees what's coming. Here's the deal, though. I look at that and I think about this. I, too, am Peter. I'm the one who makes big, brash comments with my mouth big proclamations of what I'm going to do for God and how I'm going to lay down my life for God. And then just a few hours later, I find myself tongue-tied in a courtyard when a servant girl is asking me about my association with Jesus Christ. And I read the pages of Scripture and I see myself in that and I think, why is my, my lips and my tongue so loose here and so tongue-tied here? I think it comes back to insecurity. And maybe because of rejection, we tend to reject others at times. 
You look at Judas and Peter and you see that both the traitor and the rejecter sinned against Jesus. You know what the nature of relationships is? You sin against one another. That's the common denominator between Peter and Judas. Here's what I want to look at for a brief moment, though, before we move on. It's not that they sinned against Jesus. All of us will and do sin against Jesus. All of us do and will sin against one another. It's what do you do with that? What do you do when someone sins against you? What do you do when you have sinned against someone else? I want you to watch the gospel play out in these two scenarios. Think about Judas. Judas participates in the deeds of darkness. He comes back and later betrays Jesus with a kiss. One more intimate size, a sign of close fellowship. But there was never saving faith in Christ for Judas, apparently. He related to him, but he had no relationship with him. In essence, he picked his side. The result is that his life played out the way that sin plays out, and that is that it leads to destruction. Shame and guilt occurred. He comes back and he throws the money that he sold Jesus out for to the Pharisees. It was blood money. He felt guilty. He felt shame. He felt remorse on some level. But then what did Judas end up going and doing? How did his life end? He hung himself. I read this week that Benedict Arnold ended up despised in exile in Great Britain, hated by the Americans for being a traitor, hated by the British, and he died in exile, a totally sad, lonely death. Sin leads to death. Take Peter, on the other hand. Peter, he boasts, but then he rejects later on. He once heard earlier in his life, get behind me, Satan, from from the mouth of Jesus. Interesting that Satan goes after those inner core of, of, of Jesus. But after sinning, godly sorrow leads to repentance in Peter's life. Remember what he does? Instead of hanging himself, what does he do? He weeps bitterly. You ever cried bitter tears over your sin at offending God and just going, man, and just wept over that and been remorseful? Notice how both led to sorrow. Sorrow is the common denominator in sin. But the Bible qualifies that that all sorrow is not the same. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Man, that's the kind of relationships we're looking for. But worldly sorrow brings death. Take Judas' life and Peter's life and plot them out and they, they are living and dying examples of this exact truth. Godly sorrow leading to repentance, weeping bitterly, and ultimately Jesus reinstating Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then Judas, who ends up hanging himself. I want to spend the rest of our time looking at this new command. Look at John thirteen thirty four. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I want you to take your pencil, pen, and circle the word new. It's okay to write in your Bible, by the way. If not, I put it in your notes for those of you who like a nice, clean Bible. The word new here um, is is a word that implies the idea of of freshness. It's the opposite of, of outworn. So when he issues this new command, I remember reading this, I think in high school, and for the first time going, that's odd. This isn't a new command. But it's this idea of a, of a, of a freshness. 
And it's, it's, it's not necessarily uh, implying the idea of recent or different. Another place this word shows up is in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. It wasn't new in time, in time phrase, uh, that, that God is issuing a command for his people to love, right? That's, that's been true all along. But instead, in the form and quality that there should be a, a new and freshness to how he loves now that Jesus has walked among them and shown them love in bodily form. He not only says that there's a new command, but the word command. Take the word command and underline it, highlight it. Think about this. Isn't it a little bit odd to think about someone coming up to you and saying, I command you, love. That feels really weird to us. Seems counterintuitive, in fact. You can't command me to love you. I'm an American and I have rights, you know. That's kind of the persona. I mean, I, I just thought about that. It's, it's a weird thing, I, I think, to, to feel commanded to love. And most of us would say something like this. I can't make myself feel something. I can't make myself be compatible with you. There's this myth that love is feeling and love is compatibility. Now, I know that most of us, if you were to pin us down, we wouldn't, say, we wouldn't buy into this myth. I think about Julie here. When Milan is crying in the middle of the night, and I know she's an angel child and never does this, but when she's screaming her head off in the middle of the night, Julie isn't laying in bed and going, I feel like loving on this kid. And she just walks down the, down the hallway floating because she's so in love with Milan at that moment. And goes, I can't wait to hold her in my arms. And bring that voice right here in my ear. <laughs> and then she stubs her toe on something and goes, oh, nothing for the price of love. <laughs> right? That is not what's happening right there. And yet, would you say that as a mother, she loves her kid by getting up at 2 a.m. after getting up three other times that night? Yeah. How about if a tall building were burning down and someone were to stick around and stay with a person to ensure that they got down the stairway to safety. In that moment, that hero, that person is not saying, you know what, I help you, but we're not super compatible as friends. I don't feel a connection. Sorry. I'd, I'd love to help. Right? So compatibility and emotion, I mean, chuck it out the window when you think of real, real love. That's talked about a ton. What if I marry an incompatible person? What? You would say it's loving for that person to help that stranger down the stairwell. And you'd honor that. Worldwide, we would look at that and say, that's honorable. So here's the point I'm driving home, is that God says we must decide to love those around us. The point I want you to catch is that love is an act of of the will. Next time you feel tempted, by the way, spiritual warfare has a way of coming in and just replacing, re- replacing truth with subtle lies that we begin to believe. And you begin to think emotion or compatibility is the issue. Come back to this, that love is an act of the will. I must decide to love people around me. If I waited for it to, to hinge on me feeling like it, <laughs> We'd all be in a world of, of, of hurt. 
John thinks this is so important that he stays on this all the way through 1 John. Listen to what 1 John says. He says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you hear the clear command in that? John takes the word love and obedience, and he almost uses them interchangeably. Let me read for you a few passages of Scripture, okay? Just listen while I blitz you. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Elsewhere, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Elsewhere, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Another one, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Another one, you are my friends if you do what I command. Another one, this is, this is my command, love one another. You know what? We have not even made it out of John 15. Go read First John this afternoon. It'll take you less than, I don't know, 20 minutes. And see if I'm telling the truth that love and obedience are just packaged together with this apostle. Not only is it a new command, not only is it a command, but the idea of of one another. I want you to highlight that also. It shows up twice in this short little passage. And the question comes up this, how how does this look? How are we to, to love one another? Jesus says, it's as I've loved you. What's the context of this conversation? Where are they? In a room upstairs, right? What just happened? It involves smelly feet. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. They didn't play act that and then take a break and then come back. That was done in the context of this meal. He opens with doing this menial chore. And then he just looks around them and the traitor has now left. And now he has really the inner core of the inner core. And he looks them in the eyes and he says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Don't you love that Jesus qualifies that? Because otherwise, I would let myself off the hook. I love one another. I love other people, I mean. But Jesus qualifies with the how. So anytime you think you've reached the pinnacle of love, I want you to read a gospel and linger in a gospel. I want you to watch Jesus interact with people. John 15, 13 says, Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. If the, if the imagery of Jesus on his knees washing your feet doesn't get you, how about the imagery for all of these guys as a few days from now, they're going to see their Lord and Savior dying on a cross. And not the victim of some plot that took him by surprise, but one that he willingly says, I'm going to do this because I love you. Because I love my disciples. All right, so that's how we're to love. How about, how about who we're to love? Oops, I went backwards. Let's go forwards. Who? Here it is. Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Who are you to love? You are to love those you're already in relationship with in your home and at your church. That's who you're to love. In fact, we talked last week that it better start there, right? If my wife and family saw me on Sunday mornings just with a smile on my face, just serving people, how are you, brother? And being the pastor and saying, hallelujah, and just being so kind to people. Hey, let me get that door for you. You go first. And yet at home, all they ever experienced was a monster that thought about himself and thought about himself as dictator of the land. They would see that discrepancy and go, huh, that's weird. Start at home. Start in your marriage. Start with your siblings, kids. 
Isn't that where it's hardest anyways? It's pretty easy. An hour and 15 on a, on a Sunday morning? Come on. You can pull that off in the flesh. Every day? For 18 years? Longer? You need God's help with that. So start at home. Who are you to love? You're to love those that you already know. Here's the next one. Colossians 4, 5. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Next category is that you're, you're to love on every new person that you meet. Do you view people that you meet that interrupt you on the way to a task as an opportunity for service and love and foot washing and sharing? Or do you view it as one more interruption in your day to achieving your goal, which might be the task? Man, that's a real challenge. Are we to stop doing tasks? No. But in that very moment, you pray and say, God, is this from you? I will drop whatever I'm doing. I will alter my will to submit to your will. Sometimes we miss opportunities, I think, of people God brings across our path because we're too focused on our will and accomplishing it. So love every single new person that you meet. There's a high call. Now remember, this is a new command. Its essence and its quality is unlike anything people had seen or witnessed before. So here it is. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies. If it takes God's work in your life to love those in your own home, it really takes God's work in your life to love those who have set themselves against you, who slander you, who take great joy in making fun of you, who step in front of you, who cut you off on the freeway, whatever it might be. Now, you might say, well, what does it look like to love my enemies? Does that mean that I don't raise a fist and get back at them? Glad you asked. Luke goes on. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You mimic your father when you're kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. God, help us with that one. I think only a regenerate person, only someone filled with the Holy Spirit can really do this and do this in a sincere way. I wrap up with this idea of um, why we're here. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this and this whole idea of why we are here as a church, why we're, what we're collectively pulling toward. It's the Great Commission. It's that we're here to make disciples. Take the word worship, community, and share, and think about this. Couldn't we really almost word it this way? Love God, love one another, love others. This new command that Jesus issues at the start of this upper room discourse where he's going to talk to his disciples really for almost the last time, is a command to love in a way that the world and you have never experienced before. And God help us to always be growing in this. Never feel like we have somehow arrived. You and I have been commanded to love. And as odd as that may seem, it's what it is. Look at the question that Jesus asked in verse 38. Will you really lay down your life for me? That's what he asked of Peter. Will you really lay down your life for me? So then it brings it home. 
for us. I want to invite the band up right now. And we're going to sing a song right now. And um, as they come up, I want, you to, I want you to chew on this. That love is an act of the will. And that you and I love God by loving other people. When you love someone else, you are showing your love for God. Do you know that singing right now, this better not be the totality of our love for God. Do you love God? Absolutely. I dress up kind of nice because I go to a casual church uh, on Sunday mornings. I sing really loud. And I put something in the offering. That's your love for God? I mean, if that wraps it up, we've missed something. The Bible says you love God by loving other people. That's how it gets expressed. You and I loving or not loving is simply a matter of choice. It's a matter today of I will obey or I'll choose not to obey. And a hundred times over in a week and a month, I look at my life and go, Lord, help me. Because I'm choosing not to obey right now. I'm choosing not to be Janet or Jesus. I'm choosing to be King David and serve myself. That's where grace comes in and the do-over comes in. After this song, we're going to have the extreme joy of getting to see Daniel Henderson get baptized, one of our middle school students. And his parents are going to baptize him. And um, I want you to think about this, that baptism is kind of this, this very amazing visual statement of choosing sides, of publicly saying, this is the team that I'm on. And in doing so, Daniel is getting up and he's saying, I choose to follow Jesus. And in doing so, Daniel's getting up and saying, I'm choosing to fight the good fight today. I'm choosing to yield to God and resist Satan. As we celebrate that as a family, it's just going to be an awesome time. I also just want to give mention that Kayla is going to be doing the same thing this coming Friday. And how exciting it is that young people are just saying, I want to take a stand. I want to make a public statement about this. You know what happens when you do that? You open yourself up for people being invited into your life and saying, stay on the straight and narrow. If I see Daniel five years from now, and Daniel's way off the path, I plan on being here in the next ten minutes, and if I am, I'll say, Daniel, I was there. You chose Jesus. Get back on the narrow path, buddy. That's what, that's what he's doing today. He's inviting that. I want to pray right now and then we're going to sing and then we're going to have an opportunity to, to witness the baptism. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the reality of a do-over. I pray, God, that today if there are those in this room who have never accepted your grace, who know beyond the shadow of a doubt, yes, I've been the betrayer. I've been the one who's, who's been a traitor and a denier of someone. But they've never yielded their life and been recipients of your grace. I pray, God, today that they would humble their knee, that they would open up their heart and their life and their mind, and they would invite you in. It's as simple as a child just saying, yes, I believe. God, I receive the free gift of relationship that Jesus paved the way for on the cross at Calvary. 
And just as Daniel is going to come up out of the water in a couple of minutes, so we get to die to our old self, die to our slaves, slavery to sin, and to rise up and identify with you in resurrection from the dead and walk in newness of life. God, we praise you for that. Just now, Lord, as we continue in worship, would you let the very giving of our money, of our tithes and offerings, be an expression that says we love you, we trust you, we obey you, we submit to you. Let it not be done out of guilt, manipulation, religiosity, all of which leads down to shame and destruction. But God, let it be a joyful part of our worship today as we sing as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, for our family, we've been uh, praying for Daniel since before he was born. And uh, Daniel actually asked Jesus into his heart as his Lord and Savior when he was about three or four years old. Um, and his sister, Kelly, led him to Jesus at that point. And we wanted to wait for him to get baptized till he was old enough to really understand it, know what uh, he was uh, deciding to do and, and was firm in his commitment to Jesus and that time has come today. So uh, we're here together because this was a group project uh, for uh, 13 plus years. So a uh, very proud moment for our family. So Daniel, I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question is, do you believe that Jesus was God's son, that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again on the third day? Yes. And then my second question, Daniel, is have you invited Jesus into your heart to be your Savior and the Lord of your life? Yes. All right. Then upon your confession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, our Son and our brother, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for Daniel. Thanks for the, uh, the privilege of uh, being his uh, dad and uh, his mom. And thanks for putting him in our family. And thank you, Lord, for this, this special day when he wants to go public with his commitment to you. He's, he's known you for a long time. And, Lord, this is, uh, this is the time when he wants everybody in the world to know that he's on Jesus' team. And that... Uh, Lord, I pray that in the months and weeks and years to come that we would hear of Daniel Henderson uh, walking with Jesus and uh, serving you, Jesus, and, and working to expand the kingdom of God here on earth. We pray that you would uh, protect him from the schemes of the enemy, help him to have an intimate uh, relationship with you, and receive the full reward that you want him to receive for all the good works that you've prepared for him during his life on earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you all just uh, stand up with me for a moment? And uh, we're going we're gonna to dismiss here in, in just a moment. Um, what's super exciting is we get to take just the warmth and fellowship and relationship that we just experienced around the Word, around music, around baptism, and now just bring it outside around jump houses, 
food, and, and grass. So uh, that's what's happening right now. We'd love to just invite you. Every first Sunday of the month, we just, um, we just kind of bleed out the worship service into what's going on. Um, be, sure and just, be sure and just come and, and uh, maybe introduce yourself to Daniel and congratulate him. It's just an exciting thing. Uh, it's really on the hearts and minds of us as a church to pour into children and, and let them uh, of their own free will choose to make the same kind of decision. And we're in an awesome day for the Hendersons. We get to be a part of it, which is really cool. Um, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, welcome uh, to reality. Uh, and so <laughs> next, uh, next week we'll be having two services. I just asked this. If you would, um, can you make 9 o'clock your choice of service if, if you have no difference between 9 a.m. and 10.30, our 10.30 is going to be just like this. It's going to be packed. And uh, if, if you would, we'd love to have you come at the, at the 9 o'clock one. Uh, 9 o'clock, there is only uh, nursery uh, child care going on. At the, at the 10.30, we'll be having our regular normal um, service. So uh, they're, they're, the, the services will be identical, uh, but it will just help with traffic flow and seating flow and all that kind of good stuff if you'd make 9 o'clock your service. Please be sure and invite someone and just uh, begin to share what it is God's done in your heart by even just welcoming them into a service. So let me say a word of prayer and thanks for our food. And then I hopefully, by faith, I trust that it's out there and ready. You'll be dismissed to go enjoy food. God, thank you for today and just for the sunshine, the glorious day that it was uh, before we all arrived. But now just being together, it's just that much more special. Thank you, God, that we got to cap off this morning with a baptism. And Lord, we just pray for many, many more uh, of, of lives changed and being able to see it visibly in people all over this community that so desperately need the hope that you offer. God, we thank you for food. We thank you that we get to fellowship around it. I pray that today, Lord, you'd put us outside of our comfort zone even. And even as an act of obedience, God, that we would choose to maybe find someone uh, that we don't know to go eat lunch with and, and um, to do more than strike up a conversation, Lord, but to really give of ourselves to people and be in the moment. We thank you for today. I thank you for each person here. And uh, we, just, we just look so forward to next week. In Jesus' name, amen.